in a few weeks, actually it's a little bit later this year for some reason, but in just a few weeks we'll have another State of the Union address. And what is always fascinating about the speech is not really what is said and not said. Oftentimes it's the actions of those in Congress there, right? It's very much, you see it's very visible uh, during the address, what happens, right? There's kind of a divide in Congress, right? You know, there's Republicans and there's Democrats, and we see this, whether it's a Democratic um, president or uh, a Republican president, and it didn't depend on the Speaker of the House, all those people that are kind of visible there, and you have the Supreme Court and others. But what is it that always happens when the speech is going on? I think you could already answer where I'm headed with this, right? You know, there's a divide, and then here the, the President of the United States gives this really strong point or principle or something that he's excited about or something that he's wanting to accomplish this year in his agenda. And those that agree with him, and usually his own party naturally, right, they, what do they do? They stand and applaud, right? They stand up and they cheer and applaud. And what do you notice about the other party? They're sitting in silence, right? There's a big divide, right? You, you see the one party clapping depending on, and rarely do you see them both stand. Every so often if they mention someone in the U.S. military or something, that kind of brings everybody together and those kind of things. But most markedly about government, and this isn't just the United States of America's government, this is governments from all of history that have kind of a democratic uh, government, you see the divide of the two sides, typically two sides, sometimes three, you know, in different ways. But what you see is they're applauding and the party is agreeing and the others showing their disdain or their lack of trust in what the president or the leader is saying. And so in, in Politics of all ages, there has been two sides, you typically, and little to no budging on those principles that they have. But every so often, there is complete consensus. I know that seems almost impossible in our current political climate, but there are times they finally come to an agreement on said situation. And while this is exactly what we find in our text this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 12, and looking at what's been brought before Jesus. We see two groups of people, two opposing groups. You would not, this is not two groups that you would see uh, working together ever, really. The Herodians were very much in with Rome. The Herodians were marked by their uh, agreement with and their okayness with Roman rule. The Pharisees, very much not so. Uh, They were very much focused on, uh, they wanted their freedom. They were ready for a Messiah. They just didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. They were ready for freedom. And if you could kind of say that the Pharisees were right-wingers and the Herodians were leftists. Uh, As Kent Hughes describes, he describes it as the narrow conservative Judaism was the Pharisees and the Herodians were the liberal, were very liberal in their convictions. You see, the Pharisees resisted Rome and the Herodians uh, favored Rome. But what we find is they are coming together because they both want Jesus eliminated. They're coming together, two opposing views, but yet they have consensus on this fact that they see Jesus as a threat. Jesus is a threat to both, to the Pharisee and to the religious side of things. And then for the Herodians, they see Jesus as possibly an insurrectionist. He's someone who's going to try to overthrow. He's going to gain a a rebellion and they're going to overthrow Roman rule. Exactly what the Herodians did not want. And so this is the cultural climate, really, of the day. Because the reality is, is that in AD 6, so AD 6, I mean, we're talking about just, I mean, 
This is early on in Jesus' life, before we really get any of the stories that we have in the Gospels. But in AD 6, uh, this, that same year was the year that Judea became a Roman province. And during that year, there was a man, Judas of Galilee, uh, not the Judas, again, that we see um, who betrayed Jesus. But this Judas of Galilee uh, tried to raise up a revolt against Rome. And, and, and he tried to raise up this movement and say, we need to, you shouldn't pay taxes to this government. Like, you are blaspheming against God and you are an idolatrous people by paying taxes to Rome, by, by supporting and falling under there and being submissive to Roman rule. But his revolt didn't last hardly a day, it feels like, in history. Um, quickly, he was led to his execution. But the event led to, though, a movement known as the Zealots. In the Zealot movement, you might remember that one of Jesus' followers was known as Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were itching to revolt against Rome. And eventually, you know, and you, you, might, you can see this as you read some of the, the history of Josephus and others, uh, you see that they would rise up and try to, to overthrow, and they were trying to get a movement gathered. This is why when the Messiah was to come, they were longing for this Messiah figure really to bring a revolt against Rome. So when Jesus is meeting in the wilderness, some people are gathering because they're ready to like, all right, let's go up in arms and let's overtake Rome. These were the, kind of the zealot party that were desiring it this way. And this movement, though, eventually in their attempts to overthrow Rome is what actually ended up destroying Jerusalem. Is the Romans responded against them and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple there in A.D. 70. And so, as we look at this past scripture, that kind of gives us a picture of what's being brought to Jesus. And really, this morning, just have kind of two main points, uh, kind of simple, and then we have some application points at the end. But first, what we're going to see is we're going to see really dealing with, the, uh, there's a leading question that's asked, and then we're going to see Jesus' striking Response. So first, let's look at a leading question. Let's read this together. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, listen to their flattery, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion if you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Here's their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You see, this is a, a leading question. I'm, I'm getting a little bit better at this as a parent, is, uh, is using good questions. Um, I'm giving myself away maybe with my oldest son here in the room. Um, but the other two, they don't know, so it's okay. Um, but, you know, you might ask a question, you know, along, like, especially with Grace and our daughter and having special needs and those kind of things and trying to help her with, like, overwhelming choices. So we try to limit those choices. And so she might think she's actually making a choice, but really we're making the choice for her. It's something like, you know, it might go something like this. Would you rather have carrots or broccoli? You like, you might be going like, I don't want either one. Well, that's not the question. The question was, do you want carrots or broccoli? See, I'm leading you to answer something, even though you might be like, I want fruit or I want ice cream, but that's not the question. The question was carrots or broccoli. Or it might be like, hey, for a grace, it's like, are, do you want to wear this dress or this dress? Somehow, so, somehow she still wiggles her way through those questions, as Amanda knows. Somehow it's like, no, neither. And I'm like, well, no, it's one or the other. 
Uh, and then it's the question is, are we going to give in or not, right, as, a, as, a, as parents? But it's, it's this idea of really, it's, it's a loaded question that they're asking. This, this is a question that is meant to trap him. We hear this from Mark in his description. He says it right verse 13. Here comes the Pharisees and the Herodians. Two, again, two people who should not be together on something, but here they are ready to try to trap Jesus in his talk. And we're going to hear Jesus say the same thing when he says, why well, put me to the test? He knows exactly what they're doing. They're putting him in a difficult situation to try to answer something that is going to really put him in a camp. They want to put Jesus in a camp. They want to put him in a box, and they want to say, all right, Jesus, should we pay taxes to, should we pay taxes to Rome or should we not? What their question is is saying, all right, if he says yes, you should pay taxes to Rome, they know that, that from their perspective that this is going to put a problem between him and all of, his, of his, his followers. His followers are thinking he's the Messiah. And in, again, if you know, if you've been journeying with us through the book of Mark, you know in their perspective, they're thinking of Jesus as a political Messiah. He is going to come and he's going to lead their people to a, and Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. They're thinking about a kingdom and they're like, sweet, we want this kingdom, not the kingdom of Rome. We don't want to be under Roman rule anymore. And you're going to be the one, you're the promised one, you're going to lead us from that. And so if he says no to that statement, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, that puts him also against Rome. So he can say, yes, you pay the taxes. And in their minds, they're thinking, well, if he does that, now all of a sudden he loses his audience. He loses his gathering. His people aren't going to be with him anymore. They're going to be like, what? We're supposed, you, you're okay with, with Rome. Or when he says to pay taxes, you're okay with Rome. And if not, what does that do? All they got to do is go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, here's an insurrectionist. He's trying to get his people to say, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Rome. He's against Rome. You need to eliminate him. See, their, their goal is they want to eliminate him. And so the Pharisees and the Rhodians come together. Excuse me. Let's eliminate him. Let's put him in a test. It's going to be a lose-lose situation for him. <clears throat> excuse me. And so when they're asking this question, they're saying, I want to know, where are you on this? They don't really care about the answer to this question. All they care is that we've got him. You know, this is what we've been seeing as we journey through this. They're coming, this last week of his life, they're, they're really bent on trying to get him eliminated and removed from the public eye. That he's a threat to the Pharisees and he's a threat to Rome. We need Jesus gone. And so they come with their question. But I want you to see some, there's a, a few, I think, important takeaways, even from this section. Notice, again, in verse 13, here they come, they're trying to trap him, and in verse 14, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Here, they're, they're making actually right statements. They're coming with flattery, and they're trying to just butter him up for their question. They're trying to set him up and, 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 and really just nail him with this. But yet here in, in their statements, they're actually true statements. Yes, this is true. Jesus doesn't care about your opinion. He's going to give the truth no matter what. He's going to offer truth, not what you want to hear or I want to hear. He knows that there's truth to be said, and they, and they recognize that, but do they really recognize that? But even they say this, but truly teach the way of God. You know, I believe there's, there's many people who might be like, oh, yeah, I, 
I like Jesus, and I like that he teaches, like, as a teacher, and like, oh, he was so skilled in what he said and all of these things, but are unwilling to surrender to him. They're unwilling to surrender to him. These, these guys are coming with ulterior motives. They're coming with a, a goal of trapping him. They're not coming with actual humility. You see, when we come to God, the ancient of days, we come to him with humility. We approach his word with humility. In the, on a Sunday morning, when we gather as the church and as we look at God's word like we're doing this morning, we do that with a, a humble heart and say, God, what do you have to speak to me? And I will be willing to do what you say. These guys are not willing to do what Jesus says. No matter what he says, they're unwilling because they're not humble. They're not humbling themselves before Jesus. They're trying to dethrone Jesus. And in this, there really is this leading question, this question of a, a trap and a goal here. And so Jesus has a striking response. Look at his response. As they ask this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Jesus' striking response. Look at verse 15. Again, Jesus showing his skill, his wisdom. Uh, we said that during the series, he is wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father. He's prince of peace. Here we see that he is a wonderful counselor. He is all wise. He knows their hypocrisy. He sees through their vain flattery. He sees through their phoniness. He sees their hypocrisy. And he said to them, and he says it out loud. He doesn't just this time keep it to himself. He says it out loud. Why put me to the test? And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render, to, this is a remarkable statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They came to test him. And they leave marveled. Now marvel isn't faith. They're not believing in God. They don't believe in Jesus. They're marveling again at his wisdom, as his wit even here. And so he, he answers, if you notice again, he answers with an object lesson. Uh, remarkably, I actually have uh, one of the coins. Um, and specifically, this, is a, a, this coin is a denarius. And it's this coin that has, and, and, and literally it has this inscription on it, and it has a picture. If you were to look at this coin, it has this picture of Tiberius. And Tiberius was uh, the Caesar, the, the Roman ruler at the time, and he was the son of Augustus. And so as Jesus is asked this question, and notice there's a, a lot of little nuggets in this short, short passage. For one, notice what it says here. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. It's not like Jesus was like, here, let me pull out my denarius and show you. Jesus didn't have any money. I mean, we, he doesn't, he's not sitting on money here. He doesn't have this wealth on him to say like, all right, well, so, no, he asked them. And here's the interesting thing. They're asking, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he asked for the denarius from them. And they're like, uh, yeah, yeah, here you go. Here's the denarius. They have one on them themselves. And they give him this denarius. And he looks at it, 
And he says, and he asks a question, he says, whose inscription is on this coin? Who is this? And they say, Caesar. Well, in fact, it does say Caesar. And on this coin was this image of the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And the inscription on it, and if, you're, if, you, if you look carefully actually at this coin, you can kind of see it. But what it says is, the inscription on it would read, Tiberius, son of the divine, or the god, Augustus. And on the back of it, on the back, you'd have this, this phrase here. And even if I look at it here, you have pontiff maxim. And this means high priest. And the picture was of this, this woman sitting on like this throne. And so this is the inscription of Liv, or Livia, so it's a Liv, Livia, which was um, the mother of, um, of Tiberius, wife of Augustus. And here's this picture, and it was a reminder to the Jew. They would, if they were having to give this tax, this tax was like a, a poll tax. This tax was a tax that every citizen of Rome, so if Rome had taken over a province like they had done in Judea, and as they had overtaken that province, if you lived in Judea, you had to pay this day's laborer's wage once a year to Rome. For one, this was a reminder to the Jew of their they're under Roman rule. It was offensive to them. Like, we shouldn't be under Rome. And so now it's kind of like another double blow of, I've got to pay a tribute coin. And here's the picture. It's this reminder of who's ruling my people. Who I'm under is this Tiberius. And later there'd be another ruler, Nero, who was this evil, wicked man who brought more crucifixions and more persecution to the church. One um, historian even described Nero and his reign as there wasn't enough wood left in, in Jerusalem for all the crosses of Christians on the streets. I mean, the, the brutality of these people. And here's his inscription, and the Jew hated it, and they didn't like it, and it was a reminder. And it wasn't just that. It's that the very fact of they felt like it was idolatry. This is an idol. He's saying, Tiberius, son of God, Augustus. And here on the back is a, a woman high priest. They're like, that's blasphemy to them. And so here, see why this is such a valuable question on their behalf. They're saying, well, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar, a denarius, or not? But they know either or makes him look bad to one group or to the other. And that's why Jesus makes this, and this is why it is so striking. Because Jesus, really his striking response reveals that you can both maintain loyalty to God and aspects of Caesar at the same time. Uh, I like what R.T. France said, to be loyal to God does not necessarily demand civil disobedience. It doesn't necessarily demand civil disobedience, but there, there's an area where we see this to be true. This is, what, this is why this is such a powerful statement. Kent Hughes, uh, a commentator and wonderful pastor that I've listened to and, and have all of his commentaries um, uh, that, that, they, that have been uh, produced, he said this about this uh, statement by Jesus where Jesus said, 
when he asked the question, whose likeness is on this? And when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Here's what he said about that. He said, the statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but, it, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. I mean, this is really, really why this is such a striking statement, because here's this render to Caesar, but notice what they say first, and you can't see this in the English translation. Sorry that you can't see that in this way, but first, notice what they're saying. There's the word in the English, and at least the ESV that I'm, I have uh, in front of me. Notice their question. Go back to the question uh, at the end of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And the way that word reads is to give, like to give to Caesar, to, to pay to taxes to Caesar or not. Should we pay them or should we not? But notice what Jesus says. And what he says is this. Jesus said to them, render. Now, again, you might be like, well, render. I don't, I don't really use that that often, so I don't really know exactly what that means. Or the NIV, I think, says give back. And it's this picture, and it's a word that Jesus uses, a different word than just, just to give. He says it's paying back to Caesar. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And what he was implying is that this coin is Caesar's. You just have it. And you're to pay back, repay Caesar what is due to Caesar. Because this would have been from his own, when these things are minted and those things, as, a, as a, an emperor, as a dictator, as a leader of a nation, it was your wealth. It was actually your wealth, not just the nation's wealth. It's not like it's filling up the nation's coffers. No, it's also specifically his wealth. And so when he's minting coins, it's his coins. It's coming from his wealth to the nation. And what he's saying is to repay him. And now the question goes to, like, why are they repaying back or paying back to Caesar a portion back to him? Well, think about it. I mean, with Pax Romana and others, I mean, the Christians actually are, this is what's remarkable about the spread of the gospel through this time period. What led to the spread of the gospel so rapidly was because of the Romans, the Romans and their, their ability to make roads and their avenues and paces to reach all to their provinces and others. They made the, the Pax Romana and all this. And so there's the Christians. Guess what they were using? They were using Caesar's roads. They were using those things. Like as he's making roads and as the, the, the nation of Rome is making roads, the Christians would be using those roads. And so Jesus in saying, pay back, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He's, he's saying there is an aspect of, and, and, he not, and this is the thing is, we, we make this statement because we see it in Scripture, that God he ordained three institutions. We see he ordains the family. We see this in Genesis from the very, very beginning of creation. God makes man and woman. He makes them in his image. And the two will become one. And they become one and establish. And some, a, 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 a husband is going to, they're going to, a wife is going to leave her family and cleave and stay connected to. And a new family unit is established. God established the family. But we also see that God has established an institution, a government for our good. Now, 
we don't love every aspect of government. Oftentimes we complain about it, especially when it comes to taxes, right? Like, man, tax season's coming up again. Just a reminder again, here it comes. It's rapidly approaching, man. Like, and we think of like all the, like, I, remember, I don't know if you remember your first paycheck, the very first paycheck that you received. And you're thinking, like, I, I, I got to see that as I got a little bit older, especially as I had interns even uh, at Calvary, the church I served at before. And then when they would talk about it, they would be like, well, I thought I was going to make, they in their head, thought they were going to make this. And they quickly saw their paycheck and like a third of it had gone away. And they're like, what happened? And like, like, like there's, there's one thing that brings everyone together, right? It's, it's opposing it's certain taxes and all these kind of things, right? But actually, that's not true. <laughs> that's why we have government and there's a big divide on taxes uh, as well. But the reality is this, is they were using that. And so God is saying, and Jesus is saying here, like, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But there's an even more remarkable statement. He doesn't just say, he says, yes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. You see, this is more of a question about ownership. It's more of a question about allegiance and who should... Be your allegiance. Where should your allegiance lie? And here what we get is some really, really remarkable statements by Jesus. Because here's the, here's the picture. The picture is this. When he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Here, whose inscription is he asked? Whose inscription is on this? And they're like Caesar's. He says this. Because Caesar's inscription on this, this is his. So render to Caesar, that is Caesar's. But notice what he says. Render things that are God to God. What is he saying there when he says this statement? I believe he's saying, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, if you go back to creation, what did he say when he created man? He was going to create human beings. He created them in the image of of God. You see, as a person, we are the image of God. We are created. We're different than all of creation. Trees don't have a moral compass. Animals don't have the moral compass that we have. They don't have a soul inside of them. They don't have a destiny of heaven inside of them. God has created his imprint on people, and you're his image, and you've been created in his image. And here's what he's saying. Render to God the things that are God's. He's saying your life, you are to render yourself to God. My life, as Paul would say, I should be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I give my life to him. He deserves my worship Caesar can get my taxes. He can get my respect. I should pray for him. I should, be, I, I should respect him. I should be a, 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 a citizen of this nation, and I should seek to be a good influence, and I, should, I have civil responsibilities inside of a government. But God deserves worship. Caesar doesn't get worship. Only God does. We see this. As we look at the Bible as a whole, we see times where there was civil disobedience. We see when, when in the Old Testament with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three men, here they are, and uh, they've been taken from their homeland, and they've been brought into Babylon, and here Nebuchadnezzar has made an idol to worship, and he's saying everyone must worship this idol 
and they say, no, we can't do that. It's civil disobedience. They're saying everyone else may worship and say and give their alms and give their worship and offerings and their praise to this false God, but we worship the God of the Bible and we cannot worship him. So we will choose not to do this. Even Daniel, Daniel, when he was almost like having negotiations with like, hey, we're not going to eat the food of, that you're trying to ask us to eat. We're going to only do this and that. And so they allow him to. And sure enough, God blesses them for their obedience to him. In the New Testament, as we look at the, the book of Acts, what do we find? We find Peter, James, and John constantly, and Paul, going to prison. Why? Because they were not going to stop preaching the good news about Jesus. Even though they were getting Roman, or they were getting rulers and people to tell them to stop, and the, the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day were saying to stop, and they were trying to arrest them and accuse them. What did they do? Did they say, okay, I'm sorry, we shouldn't have done that, we'll be quiet? No, they said, we can't stop. We're not going to stop. We're going to continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so I believe there's just three, three, I mean, there are probably many, 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 many more. But three, I think, application points for us this morning. And as one is this, we should strive to be exemplary citizens. We should strive to be exemplary, exemplary citizens. Because here's the reality is we are dual citizens. We have our citizenship, yes. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to him. You're, you've surrendered to him. You have bowed the knee to King Jesus through faith. You're a citizen of heaven. And so we live as ambassadors for heaven, for Jesus, for our king. But as we live in various governments, whether you live abroad or live in the United States of America, the reality is we are, we're dual citizens. We should seek to and strive to be exemplary and be involved in. We shouldn't be like, well, I don't love either candidate or I don't love who's going to, so I'm just going to sit back and watch. No, like we have a responsibility we have a, a God-given responsibility to be involved. The early Christians, uh, as one commentator noted, the early Christians took advantage of the Roman road systems and the relative peace and order that Roman power imposed on the world to spread the gospel. And if we make use of the state's money and benefit from its highways and sewers, we are bound to pay its taxes. So, listen, it is wrong for us to avoid tax, when we, to tax evasion. We should pay our taxes. We should not cheat on our taxes. We can be like, well, I mean, I mean seriously, it's like a few dollars or it's $100 here, $100 there. You know, big, no big deal. I don't need to report this income or that income. No, we should seek to do what is right. We should be an exemplary citizen. Secondly, we should resist authority if what is asked to do, what we're asked to do will cause us to violate a command of God. We should resist authority if what is asked to do, we're asked to do, will cause us to violate a command of God. Another commentator said, God's law prevails over the state's law. The Christian owes Caesar something, but not everything. Obedience must be vigilant and discerning because the state is also answerable to God. The demands of God are infinitely greater. We who bear God's image and are inscribed with Jesus' name owe God everything. We may owe Caesar something in this instance for the, the people of the day, in Jesus' day. But here he's saying, yes, they may owe him something. They owe his 
obedience in certain areas. We follow the laws of the land that have been established for our good. We may not like them, and some of the laws are evil laws, and so we're not going to obey those laws. Just because government says that you can do something doesn't mean we should do that. It is not the law. God's law is first and foremost for us. It guides our decision-making. Yes, there can be laws that we do not approve of and that we adamantly do not approve of as a follower of Jesus. And, but we don't bring civil disobedience unless it is causing us to sin, unless we're forced to do it or have to do it or it keeps us from doing something that we're called to do. And thirdly and finally is this. We have certain obligations to our political, political leaders but our ultimate allegiance and everything we have belongs to God. We owe him everything. Our very lives belong to him. God deserves worship. Many, many people in our world, we idolize people and things and, and, and we can worship money. And that can drive how we vote is because, and oftentimes that is what drives most people in how they vote, sadly, is like, what's going to be the most benefit to me versus what candidate is looking at God's law and God's law is guiding him. Or as we pray for our leaders, are we actively doing what God has called us to do, to pray for our leaders? You see, what Jesus said this day is what guided the words of, uh, of Peter in 1 Peter 2, 13-17. We'll look at that at some other time. We're not going to look at it today. We don't have time this morning. In Romans 13, 1-7. So if you're wanting to know, like, what's the exposition of what this looks like, of submitting to leaders, read Romans 13, 1-7. And read 1 Peter 2, 13-17. And see what Peter is saying about how we're to view leaders. And see what Paul is saying about our our. Um, how authorities and how we should be submitted to authorities. But ultimately, ultimately, though, our worship only belongs to one, and that is the Lord. You see, we had a leading question, and we had a striking response. I'm going to ask you this morning, though, what is your response? As you hear these words of Jesus to not just render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, because we can kind of just focus on that aspect. All right, well, because the question was about paying taxes, so, well, he now said, well, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And we can totally miss the last statement. And to God the things that are God's. How about this week? What would it look like to live this very week in complete surrender and submission? to what Jesus has for you, what God has for your life. How does that change how you view tomorrow at work or tomorrow at school, how you interact with the neighbors around you? How does a complete surrender to God and saying that my life belongs to God, that he gets everything, he gets complete worship, how does that change tomorrow for you? Because reality is most of us, live lives as if God doesn't exist. We live as if we're our own authority. We want to make the decisions that most benefit us, but what if tomorrow's decisions, we said, I'm going to align my heart 
through God's word. I'm going to let God's word speak into my life, and I'm going to surrender. So tomorrow, when you open up your Bible, maybe for the first time in a long time, I know it's a new year, so maybe you're in Genesis. <laughs> I'm not sure where you are, and you might only finish Genesis this year, and that's okay. Uh, but as we look at God's word, and you're saying, I'm going to open my Bible tomorrow, what would it look like to pray something like this tomorrow or today, later today, before you go to bed? And you pray something like this, and you say, God, will you speak to me? Will you speak to me as I open up your word? God, will you open my eyes? It's a prayer that you hear me probably pray often before I speak. It's God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? But then here's the third part. Hearts ready to respond to what you have for me. What would it look like to pray that prayer as you took about your day? God, today is your day. It's not my day. This is your day. What do you want me to do with it? I know that i got to provide for my family, and I'm going to work hard. But I'm going to work with integrity. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm an employer, and I, I know like, we can try to maybe cut corners, and how can we save money here and there. But I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to do the right thing. Tomorrow I'm getting on the highway, and I'm heading to Atlanta, and I'm going to drive the speed limit. <laughs> right. Okay, you're like, okay, that's too far, Eric, way too far. You know, no one else is doing it right. You know, but, I, but reality is like, okay, I'm gonna, am I going to submit to the authorities that God has established? Because here we can get so frustrated by our leaders, and we might not like the current leader, we might have liked the other, or we might not have liked the other, and now we like this one, but now we're like, all right, we're ready for something different. And we can get so focused on those things and leaders, and we can think that, man, our government is so corrupt, and maybe it is. But if we were to read, and as I invited you to read later, as you read Peter saying, submit to your leaders and obey them in every way. He's saying that to Christians who are under immense oppression, under Nero of Rome. The one I was describing is persecuting Christians, destroys Rome, destroys the temple. The corruption and him saying to Obey them. Can you imagine those words coming from Peter who took his sword and cut an ear off of a Roman soldier? But yet here he is trying to communicate to a, a, a persecuted church, spread the elect exiles as, as 1 Peter opens. As he's sending this letter to them of encouragement and challenging them to say, I know you're being persecuted, but trust in God and obey and pray for your leaders. And you're like, what? I can't obey this kind of thing. No, we don't, as I was saying earlier. Yes, if, if he's saying you can't worship, you continue to worship. And that's why they were persecuted. Because they were unwilling to bend on God's word. God's word was their guide, and so they said, we will obey him. We're going to worship God and him only. And I can't help but think this morning, this is really remarkable. This is the thought that came to me this morning as I was walking to school as we were setting up this morning. Think about this. We're in a government building right now. We're in a public school worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what a blessing. There are churches who are hidden underground. There's churches meeting in the closets, gathering 20, 30 people, squeezed in because they can't even have a copy of God's Word. And so they're sharing God's Word. And they're meeting because in, in fear potentially of their life, but they're willing to meet. And they're willing to go to that because of, they believe that God deserves all worship, not some dictator. And so they're willing to civilly, uh, civil, in a civilized way, civil disobedience because they know that this, this king, there's a greater king. 
But yet, God has established this king for a purpose, or this leader for a purpose, and we're going to trust God through that, but we're going to submit to him and trust in him. So my challenge for you this morning is trust in God and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we really do humbly approach a, a, a challenging topic, one that brings emotions. We think of this year, it's an election year. There'll be so much bickering, fighting. There'll be a lot of slander. There'll be a lot of information. There'll be so much, really a chaotic, I'm sure, year. As we've really seen over the past decade or so, God, we we recognize that uh, we are sinful people and um, we have sinful leaders, and we are a people who are really messed up. We're broken. But God, I thank you that this is why your son came to restore, to redeem, and to restore. We thank you that you are a model to us of your respect for authorities, but your wisdom in dealing with even these questions that were asked, and how you so tactfully answered even this question. But we get to uh, just a quick picture, though, God, of what you're calling us to, of complete surrender to you, because you are the God, you are the ancient of days. So, Father, help us. We tend to put our eyes on the things of this world, and we can put our eyes even on a government and on a leader and think, this leader is going to be the one that's going to lead us. We can put our eyes on the things, or we can even put the eyes on ourselves and say, I'm going to, I'm going to go before, I'm going to lead the way, I'm going to make a difference, or I'm going to do these things. And we can so easily lead our own lives. God, help us to humbly submit and turn our eyes away from you and turn our eyes straight directly to you. May we fix our eyes, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. And may we always look to you. May we listen to you and may we respond with hearts uh, willing to do what exactly you have called us to do. So help us in all these ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we...